Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast. I'm Paul Chapman. Today I'm joined by Ilya Bushuev, Managing Partner at Pentathlon Investment, Adjunct Professor at NYU, and formerly President of Coke Global Partners and Managing Director Global Head of Derivatives at Coke Supply and Trading. Ilya, welcome to the show. Paul, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. I guess your career has largely been spent trading financial products. I know your career is a, a melding of physical and financial trading, but there's been a, a real financialization of the commodity markets over the last 25 years. Can you tease apart some of the themes and trends that have happened during that period? Absolutely. Yes, I was very fortunate to be in a somewhat um, unique position when 25 years ago, I got, I got an opportunity to join a trading company, Coke which is a large uh, physical trader at the time. But my personal background uh, was entirely in financial markets and, and a quantitative analysis. So I was a little bit of an odd uh, kid on the block back then. Everybody around me basically was a physical trader, but they were very smart. So they saw there was a lot of opportunities essentially to arbitrage themselves. And someone with quantitative skills like mine could actually make it for living by arbitraging the traditional physical businesses. Now, if you sort of uh, fast forward to where we are today, when I was retiring from Coke after 25 years, essentially it was very odd not to be a quant when you interview new people for your trading team. It was very odd for people not to have any quantitative skills or coding skills. This is how the world has changed in these 25 years. So by now, almost everybody became a quant. But it also uh, leads to some other interesting opportunities. When everyone becomes a quant, it essentially creates uh, some interesting opportunity with new generation of traders or people of skill that can probably find some arbitrages among the quants, very similar to how I was given an opportunity to, to find, basically, to extract some money by trading against physical businesses. I actually think that the new wave of uh, trading is going to be people trying to find uh, weaknesses in, in, how, in how quantitative algorithms are trading, because by now, everybody sort of became a quant. And I guess we've just had an event that really does show some of the dislocation, even potentially, or at least the, exas the exacerbation of markets when you have financial trading and the physical side as well. In, you know, we just had negative oil prices. How does, do we know what happened there? Is that a function of a, somewhat of a, a split between the physical markets and the financial markets? Yes, definitely. But first, to defend uh, sort of uh, the quantitative industry, quants didn't really have anything to do with this episode. Quants play by the rules. And people who created this episode, they either did not have the rules or they had uh, some very bad ones that they had to follow. But you're absolutely right. So that's actually a great example where you saw physical and financial markets jointly essentially led to this event. The most popular explanation you hear all the time, it was driven by, by storage and storage was full. Uh, well, yes, I think my answer to that would be storage was definitely a catalyst. 
Absolutely. We didn't have much storage. We got a massive demand shock for sure, but storage hasn't really been completely full, frankly. It was a catalyst. What, what it really caused, the market was very volatile for sure. And if you, as I said, whether you're a quant or a physical trading house, if you play by the rules, uh, you try to size your risk based on the volatility of the asset. And that infamous May contract was extremely volatile. So it's actually forced a lot of large players, both quantitative on the financial side and physical, to get out of the contracts earlier. Because the contract was very volatile, it was very difficult to trade. So essentially, all the big guys left the current contract early. And when it came to the, to the last day, or I should say the penultimate day, there were still some financial products which, for whatever reason, they chose to settle their over-the-counter financial products that they were trying to sell to investors or, or one day before, before the futures expiration, which is very crazy, I should say. This is when I, when I said that the people who suffered, they didn't have good rules. That was a great example, and I think one of the financial products was well-publicized, was issued by the Bank of China. Even though the volumes were not very large, but when you sell futures into, into the vacuum, it really doesn't take much volume to, to do some uh, crazy things with price, and that's what happened. So they had to get out of the contract. There were not that many people on the other side because the big guys already left, left that contract. Obviously, if I knew in advance that it would settle at minus thirty-seven dollars, <laughs> I yeah. I probably would have bought it. <laughs> but if you work, for, if you play by the rules, Paul, if you work for Coke, BP, Shell, so we have rules. So you have to get out of your position by a certain amount, by a certain date, and then and it all happened in the last twenty minutes. I think it was impossible for people even to get authority. To, to, to actually buy this contract at such a big negative discount. But trust me, at minus $37 or $60 differential to June, you cannot explain it by storage. You can find a lot of ways to get this oil uh, and take a delivery. And besides, it was uh, a lot tighter, the differential, two hours before the event and like three hours after. Storage economics simply does not change by by $40 in the course of three hours. Mm. Was it just, I guess, before we dig in a little bit on that, was this a market functioning as it should do? Or was there actually technical issues with the, you know, the exchanges themselves and, and it was never designed to go negative? It's a little difficult to say whether it was explicitly designed or not, but the exchanges warned a couple of weeks prior, uh, they actually send out the warning that we're going to continue to function if the price gets negative. That's actually what uh, really added fuel to the fire because, again, using the Bank of China example, they apparently had nearly 60,000 retail customers owning over-the-counter product linked to May WTI. So if you got this notice with two weeks uh, before the expiry that negative prices are okay, it's impossible for them to change that. I mean, are you going to contact 60,000 people and try to change the contract? That's impossible. And clearly, their contract was not designed for negative prices. So, but ultimately, their problem, that's when I said people didn't have good rules. 
So if you basically had a wrong design for your contract, I think the exchange function okay. They function how it said it's going to function, whether, whether it reflected the actual price of the physical commodity at the time, that's a different question. Probably not. Well, most definitely. But in terms of actual rules, they warn people they're going to continue to trade and the price is going to be, again, whatever it is. And one could challenge that it didn't reflect the, the reality of the physical market. That's a valid challenge. But then you have to take it into account when you design your contracts and trying to link your over-the-counter contract to that price. Yeah, I guess that brings a really interesting trend or change that has also happened over the um, the last few years. Has been a variety of causes, one of which you know you've had a pushing of commodities onto the exchanges from Dodd Frank and other 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 reasons. But you have had new institutions, new types of participants come into the financial space, including retail, you know, the famous USO fund here, how much of a role did they play in the events of, of, of May and, and, or the May contract? And, you know, what's your take there? Yeah, there are definitely a lot of participants. And if anything, one mistake that, that physical traders sometimes make by referring to all of these institutions more generally as funds. But there are so many different type of funds and they operate under completely different mandates and goals. So I think it would be a mistake to bucket them all together. There are CTAs like momentum type of funds. There are arbitrage type of funds, arbitrage in, for example, ETFs versus futures. There are cross-market quant funds, arbitraging across different asset classes. There are risk parity funds, there are volatility targeted funds, uh, there are a lot of option funds. So they all have different business models. So in that case, I think it's a mistake when the event happens, you blame it all for all funds. So as I said, the negative uh, price episode was almost exclusively driven by fairly insignificant, I would say like forgotten products issued primarily in Asia. USA, USO had technically nothing to do with that because uh, they might have contributed to being a catalyst because they were rolling contracts away from the prompt as they were bumping into position limits. So, But they were out of this contract at least a couple of weeks prior to expiration. I'm not defending USO here because they obviously got a lot of negative publicity for, for a good reason, just because of the performance. But they didn't have anything to do with that with that particular episode. Yeah. While we're talking about different participants, we have certainly heard a lot about trading driven by algorithms, sort of passive in, in passive trading as opposed to active traders with a fundamental view. How prevalent do you think algorithms are in the commodities world and how much do they really drive pricing on any given day? A lot. That's a short answer. And and the algorithms uh, come in smarter and smarter day by day. I think it's no longer uh, a correct split where you have an active trader, a human, versus uh, a passive trader, an algorithm. Now, the biggest growth, in fact, uh, is in active algorithms where, and I have been doing it myself in my previous job, and I'm actually doing some of it now, where there are a lot of efforts in trying to systematize knowledge of the active trader. 
because the knowledge is still there. And then if you can find a way to systematize it and turn it into an algorithm, that might be a, a, a more efficient way to trade because it eliminates some of the human biases. But the, the boundary between active discretionary trader and the algorithm now are being blurred. So everything essentially, both sides are converging now to some sort of a algorithmic or model supported, I wouldn't say systematic, but model-driven discretionary trader. So traditional discretionary trader always now have quants to run the algorithms, even though the final decisions may still be left to human. But vice versa, you've actually seen algorithms, very algorithmic shops like CTAs. Now they're employing former essentially active traders effectively in some sort of a consultant role to correct the behavior of their algorithms. So I think we both sort of converge into that sweet spot that blends the two. That's fascinating. That's almost like the ideal trader of the future is going to be a, you know, much like your career, right? A, a quant with, the, I guess, the, the Python coding skills or whatever it might require, you know, plus actually, and this is going to be the challenge, is a, a being steeped in the physical commodity value chain itself so that they can react to those shocks or, or whatever particular events might be going on. For sure. I mean, I, I probably wasn't as fortunate to actually be able to capture that because I was either on one side or another and only at the end of my trading career, I was making some efforts to blend the two. So I'll leave it to the next generation of traders to capture this opportunity but you're absolutely right. I think that's where where the future is going to be. Mm. I mean, I know you're you're an educator too at NYU. Are you are you seeing that in in your classes? Is that you know a, is that level of instruction going on? Absolutely. I think you you already see this blend of very talented uh, mathematician and developers signing up for non technical class. I think it's already happening for sure. Changing tack slightly. One of the big events in the uh, the last twenty five years has been was the global financial crisis, and then obviously the the Dodd Frank um, regulations, the Volcker Rule, which is you know currently being rolled back. How did that change commodities trading itself? Because it did, it, you know, we did have a profound impact. You saw participants leave. You saw, you know, in the form of the banks, it, it did have a, a big impact on the market. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. And again, it's somewhat uh, driven by my own personal experience and the team that I ran at Coke. Well, first of all, I think it was very good for the exchanges. So it led to gigantic flow of deals away from over-the-counter market to, to cleared exchanges simply because there was an extra cost, extra burden of reporting. Just simplistically, it was more expensive to trade OTC. And that was the intent of Dodd-Frank. I think they have succeeded. So the volumes got shifted massively to the exchanges, so it was good to the exchange. By itself, the Dodd-Frank probably didn't create this algorithmic trading. What it did... I think it eliminated a little bit of human interaction. If anything, it was bad for marketing and sales because you could no longer 
uh, talk like you used to before with chit chat with your customers and while doing this uh, pleasant conversations, doing deals in the meantime, that wasn't allowed anymore. So the human uh, component was essentially uh, taken away. And as I think that's the industry that suffered the most, but not really trading. So when everything then became electronic and started to trade on the exchange, I think that uh, was a contribution of Dodd Frank, but the, the proliferation of algorithmic trading, I don't think it has much to do with Dodd Frank. If anything, that more, was more like coincidental growth in technology and applications and big data in general. So when, when you got the data, you get the quants. And the amount of data that we started to get with our iPhones and just everything, fundamental data. So data was no longer secret. So when uh, 25 years ago I joined again Coke, there probably five companies in the world had a decent Cushion model. I mean, a supply and demand model for Cushion Oklahoma, the delivery point for WTI. Now there are probably hundreds, if not thousands of people having equally good Cushing model because it's all ultimately driven by the same data, which are generally, in well, they're not in public domain. You have to pay for it, but the data is available. And once you get this data, uh, that's a paradise for quants. And I think they started to write algorithms based on this data. Yeah. There are also some controls. And I actually agree with you. I think, you know, you can just look at the roles that Inevitably, you know, it disappeared post Dodd Frank, you know, around that kind of mid marketer and so on. You know, it also brought in a number of controls and regulations more broadly. I think it certainly required organizations to have more sophisticated minimum back offices. We're right now, we've, we've had a couple of recent scandals in or significant losses in commodity firms in Asia. Do you think that there's a, a need for I guess, more global regulation or what's your take on what's sort of going on over there? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was a bit surprised, frankly, how in the world it could have happened again with all these new regulations. Again, this is a fairly new thing in Asia, but unfortunately that region has historically dominated with commodity blowups. The history is actually quite, quite deep there. So the only thing I can think of that the regulation in Asia may be a little bit more lax than they are in the United States. I think in the US and Europe, the regulations are already quite tight. So in terms of global, there are, there are obviously some efforts, but at the same time, I think the local regulators need to do, need to do a better job. You mentioned regulation. One of the, the unique things about the commodities market compared to, say, you know, certainly equities is the significant role of, of states, of, of state-sponsored organizations, national champions, even the states themselves, as alluded to earlier with the Bank of China, participating in the markets. How does, how does that impact the efficiency of the markets? How does that impact commodities trading? Well, it's a good question. It's a difficult question. But first on Bank of China, uh, again, I wasn't uh, implying that there was some coordination between uh, the bank uh, and the state. Uh, most likely not. However, uh, there's obviously some conspiracy theory that somehow uh, the 
state-owned bank first uh, led to negative oil prices. And coincidentally, in the following months, all the physical cargoes bought on the lows were going to, to China. But I would just leave it as a conspiracy theory uh, on that one. But in the broader context, absolutely, states always have an agenda. That's why we all love talking about OPEC and, and even what's going on in the United States. We were even discussing these taxes producers. The commission, the local commission was talking about potentially mandatory cuts. Uh, everybody has an agenda. And I think maybe the best example, the recent example, like would be OPEC. Now, again, this is my personal opinion. So OPEC discovered this new strategy that they can meet frequently online and change their policy quite, quite quickly, which is different from the past. So which is essentially going to create more volatility and uncertainty in the market. So if you're going to meet once a month and add uncertainty to the market, it's going to be very difficult for U.S. producers to compete against because the only way they can defend themselves would be to hedge. So, and that's essentially what we're seeing now. The uh, OPEC is trying to introduce actually more uncertainty on the market and US, forcing U.S. producers effectively to hedge, maybe hit a bit, and hopefully to even flip the market into backwardation, which is what OPEC really wants. But everybody has an agenda, by all means. Uh, or Saudis uh, sending cargoes in the United States. Uh, again, it's all, we're never going to know for sure. We can only guess what the agenda is. But that's definitely what makes um, our markets exciting. And that's one of the reasons, actually, I mentioned earlier, that the algorithms uh, cannot capture. That's why trading oil simply based on algorithms it's not going to be easy. There should be some human um, overlay on top of the algorithms. Yeah, because when you look at the algorithms aside, when you look at the performance of commodity hedge funds or commodity or portfolio deaths within broader asset class hedge funds, it's not really a stellar performance over the last decade or 15 years. Definitely. I would say, I mean, obviously... There are some highlights, there are low lights, but if you have a big enough sample, you always can find uh, both extremes. Oil is not the easy market uh, to trade if that's your primary. There are just way too many factors. I think uh, the performance was mixed, to say the least. Usually, when you start your own fund, you have an idea. And that idea is typically some niche idea or you found some little arbitrage strategy, which is valid. You have a real competitive advantage on that. The problem is it's typically not very scalable. So you may run a small fund and generate very good returns. But at the end of the day, running a fund is not cheap these days. So you need to have at least $100 million probably just to pay your bills. So effectively, as a fund manager, in my opinion, you're being forced out uh, away from your competitive advantage into deeper markets, just trading outright directional oil. Uh, and this is very hard to do, basically, consistently. You can sometimes get fortunate or unfortunate and get things right or wrong. But the real edge that professional fund managers bring 
are unfortunately on less scalable strategies. Whenever they want to scale it up, they were basically diluting uh, their original edge uh, driven by, by the fees. So they need to run bigger funds. And at some point, they desire to get the fees, start dominating. You lose your competitive advantage. And very often, you just blow up at some point. Yeah. And even if you don't scale, it seems that that sort of, in quotes, mousetrap has a shorter shelf life now than it ever did. You know, as there's a, as people, you know, seek businesses with higher yields, as, as technologies quickly capture and can disrupt any particular strategy that you might have. Absolutely. Yes. That's also the problem. And besides, on top of this, investors, uh, as we become more efficient with technology, the cost for services are coming down. And that includes, I mean, it covers everything. Things, many things are so much cheaper these days, and it should also have an impact on hedge fund fees. So that's why the hedge fund business model, I don't see a huge potential in it. If anything, uh, a better model would be in ETF industry. And again, I'm not talking about USO, but I'm talking about ETF as an industry. I think that industry has a bigger potential where, as I mentioned earlier, some of the ideas could probably be systematized and packaged into a tradable strategies. Uh, they're not going to be as good as the hedge fund strategies, but you can actually get pretty close. You can systematize a lot of ideas and let um, make the decision on sizing or when to run this particular strategy or not to run. I think I'm much more bullish uh, in the longer run on uh, smarter commodity ETFs. And again, I'm not talking about the passive USO type of products. I'm talking about potentially more active ETFs in the commodity space. They're currently being developed in equities and fixed income, but not yet in commodities. Yeah, there are some, I know you, you, know, you mentioned in the past that there are some institutional investors I guess at least looking at those products. I, mean, I was going to say, you know, when you when you piece put it all together, it's a it's a very challenging market to trade. You've got politics; it's the intersect of geopolitics. You've got challenges with regulation, transparency. You know, it's, it is a difficult. Sometimes these strategies can be very difficult to scale. What's your overall take for the future of commodities as an asset class, as it pertains to this large group of funds and investors? I'm still bullish. I'm still very bullish commodities. And my simple, uh, very simple reason, because we are still so small uh, as an asset class relative to other alternatives like equities and bonds. Just to do in back of the envelope calculation, if you take, for example, at CME, open interest, give or take, let's say it's about uh, 2 million contracts. Or something like that. So if each contract is worth $40 at today's prices, that gives you about $80 billion of notional size of the market. Just to compare, the equity market in the U.S. is about $40 trillion. The bond market in the U.S. is another $40 trillion. So that means financial U.S. market is $80 trillion, and we are $80 billion. So... That's one-tenth of one percent. So we are so much smaller. Uh, and again, it's a 
back of the envelope calculation, but it gives you an idea how much smaller we are relative to other asset classes. And, and look how massive the ETF industry is and it's growing in fixed income. And there are so many opportunities down the road to develop such industry in commodities. So I'm, I'm very bullish. And what would that, does that mean from a talent perspective? Is that associated with an increased rise in need for, I guess, those financial traders with a physical routing? It has to be a team. So, I mean, it's very difficult to find an individual that has uh, hybrid skills. I'm fairly sure they will be valuable. So the hybrid individuals, but maybe the analogies that I like, I like the most, I think it uh, was first uh, written by Michael Mobusin, where he was comparing some of the markets to freestyle chess, where if you recall a uh, long time ago, well, in the ancient days, chess has always been dominated by human beings until about 20 years ago, Deep Blue, the IBM machine, beat Garry Kasparov. That was a big deal because essentially machine beat human at the same, uh, for the first time. But actually what's happening now, and I, 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 I attended one of those events, it's called the freestyle chess, where essentially kind of a second tier, but smart, educated chess players compete against each other, but they're allowed to use a computer. So the computer does all the calculation, but the human being ultimately makes a move. So all the hard work is done by a computer. And now what's happening now, this freestyle is called freestyle chess. This freestyle chess players are now regularly beating the machine. So the first thing, Machine beats a human, and now what's happening, human combined with a machine is beating the machine. So I like this analogy because I really think it applies perfectly to trading. So we already have gone through the period where quants came in to start, started to dominate and started to dominate and beat the humans. But now there is a need for the smart combination of the two. How do you equip a uh, human with a machine, how do we blend the two? So I think, again, in terms of uh, skills, the hybrid skills are going to be in definitely high demand, but also it's an ability to put together the team that has both set of skills. Fascinating. I, I love that analogy, and I, I think you're correct as well. What? So, so taking that, you've got a growing uh, an asset class that you you has fundamental reasons why it, sh it should and hopefully will grow. And you do have this changing skill sets or changing demands for, for different types of skill sets. What advice would you give to someone interested in trading commodities? What, what advice would you give them about what learning they need to do now to, to be successful? I think you need to be open-minded first. The history does repeat a little bit, but not by much. Commodities always in a constant regime change. So if you're approaching, well, if you are approaching it from the physical side, I think you do need to systematize some of your thought processes at least and put it in the algorithm to be consistent. If you're approaching it from the quantitative side, and if you think you have found some magic algorithm that worked in the past, and, and it's going to make you rich in the future, that's probably wrong as well. 
because commodities change all the time. There are so many structural changes with shale, changes in the specification for products, lifting of U.S. export ban. So you cannot run your backtest on 20-year history. It's simply irrelevant. So you have to be very nimble and very open-minded. Was it Mark Twain said that history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme? Great way to summarize it, yes. And, and I guess before we let you go, you've already alluded to a couple, I think, but you know, just even the OPEC and how they've changed their meeting practice. What do you think, if any, are going to be the long-lasting impacts of COVID-19 on, on the commodity space? I think that's one of the questions that uh, I would be full even trying to answer. <laughs> I'm a little bit concerned that about many analysts publishing the V-shaped recovery, because to me, this is like uh, the best case, not the expected case. And I hope, I hope they are right. And I hope the demand is going to recover exactly as they were saying. But again, here being a quant, uh, I would always suggest to run some kind of Monte Carlo simulation and the, your, your negative tail is so much bigger here than your positive tail. So I simply cannot, I don't understand how they come up with a V-shaped recovery as a base case. I don't think it's possible. It might be that uh, interaction of politics again that we spoke, spoke about earlier on. Well, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. I know that you regularly publish thought pieces. You done one recently on the negative oil prices. Where, where can people find your, your thoughts and your work? I didn't have a chance to create my website yet, but it's coming. So uh, once it's up and running, I'll post it on Twitter probably. I recently discovered Twitter and I feel so bad not knowing about it uh, because there is so much information, but I tend to post some commentary there about the markets. Personally, my view, obviously not any advice of any kind. And I'm on LinkedIn as well, posting there as well. Excellent. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, it's my first name and my last name. Perfect. Well, it's been a real pleasure. I, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, discussing with us. It's been a fascinating discussion. And uh, yeah, look forward to uh, talking again soon. All right. Thank you very much, Paul. Thanks, Ilya.